Amen. Good to be together today, uh, and I think you're aware, uh, I hope you're aware, that we don't come together because we have it all together, right? We come together as people who don't and are desperately in need of God's grace and mercy. Uh, you know, there, there's varying levels of, of good health and vary, varying levels of like feeling like we have it all together. Uh, most of us usually kind of put on a front like we have it more together than we really do, and it's good to be with God's people and acknowledge that really we don't. Uh, so we recognize that in all sorts of, of different ways. I got here this morning, and I don't look at the mirror much, and I looked at the mirror in the, in the bathroom, and I saw like, man, my shirt looks like it's still on a hanger. I found this in my closet. I hadn't worn it for a while. Uh, so like, man, you know, I suppose that's, that's just kind of like, well, that looks a little funny to have little things popping up on my shirt. Uh, but that's just a good reminder, like, hey, we don't have it all together. Uh, that's just who we are. Um, and maybe your body feels like, man, God has given me great health and I feel totally good today. Or maybe you've been dealing with all sorts of little things. But by God's grace, uh, we're, we're good enough to be here together. And we're, we're grateful um, for that. Thankful for the good health that God has given us. And uh, we acknowledge, though, these bodies, they are wearing out over time, and so unless Jesus comes back first, we're all headed toward uh, things getting worse, probably, rather than getting better at some point. Uh, and I don't know about you, maybe, maybe you don't, but a lot of people spend at least a little bit of time wondering things like, well, when will, when will I die? Maybe, maybe you spend some time even thinking about how you will die, maybe even just thinking about it or me mentioning it makes you feel a little anxious. Some people, like every time a new health issue comes up in your body, you become pretty immediately anxious. This, well, is this going to be the thing that leads to my death? And if you Google it, you'll probably think that for sure, right? Like, oh, certainly this symptom is going to lead to my immediate death. Maybe you get anxious and so you go see a doctor rather than Googling something, which is a much better way of handling things, I think. Or maybe, maybe because you're anxious, you avoid going to see a doctor because you don't want to hear what they have to say. Or maybe you're married to somebody like that. Death can come in so many ways. Maybe you look at the world around you and you just see danger upon danger. Certainly people living in the Ukraine see that right in front of them and feel that much more imminently than many of us do on this day. We're in the book of Acts together as a church. Just a few sermons left. Uh, we're going through these last chapters a little more quickly. But today we're just going to be in a shorter section looking at the last 13 verses of Acts chapter 23. Rich Turchow, one of our missions partners uh, from Eastern Europe, uh, was with us last week and walked us through the beginning of Acts chapter 23. Just to get you up to speed, what's happened is Paul, the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem, has been arrested his life threatened by an angry mob, brought before a council. They thought he didn't deserve to live, but more than once, Paul has been protected by the Roman authorities, the ones who had arrested him. And here's what we need to know, especially as we walk into the passage today. Two things that, Paul, uh, that, that are important for the passage today for context is this. One, there was a promise. Paul received a promise from Jesus in verse 11. If you have your Bible open in Acts chapter 23, you can look back at verse 11 where you would read this. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, 
For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So we know, because God has promised it to Paul, that the Apostle Paul, though he is a prisoner in Jerusalem, is going to be testifying to the facts about Jesus many, many miles away in Rome. But here's the other thing that seems to complicate that promise. The thing that seems to complicate that promise is what we saw in the verses following. Starting in verse 12, we read about this plot by 40 or more men who have a plan. They're plotting for Paul's death. They want to see the Apostle Paul sometime on his journey from Jerusalem to wherever he's going next. They want to set up an ambush that they might kill the Apostle Paul. So there's a promise, but there's also a plot. Thankfully, this plot has been found out by Paul's nephew. He hears of the plot, and he goes to tell the Romans who have arrested Paul and are holding him, hey, this is what some of the Jewish people are plotting. Will you protect Paul from the mob? What's going to happen? I mean, that's kind of the tension in this story, right? What's going to happen? How is Paul who was promised that he would get to Rome. How's he going to get to Rome if there's 40-plus men waiting in ambush to kill him? Here's what we're going to see as we walk through the last verses of Acts 23 today. I think we see this. God will guard us so that we will not die until the day he has appointed for us. God will guard us so that we will not die until the day that he has appointed for us. I'm going to see this in Acts chapter 23, verses 23 to 35. And if you're able to, because this is the very Word of God, would you please stand? I'll pray and then we'll read. Oh, Father, thank you for the opportunity we've already had as a church to join our voices together in song, worshiping you because you're worthy. Thank you for Ron's willingness to stand and lead us in prayer as we come before you to express just how needy we are. And now we continue in that posture of humble neediness where we say before you, we believe you're worthy of our lives And we need our minds and hearts to be transformed again, molded by your word, which is a work that I know can only be done by your spirit. And so I pray that through the word being read now and and then as I preach, that you would be working in our minds, in our hearts, by your Holy Spirit, that we might become more and more a people molded by your word and motivated by your glory as we do the work of making disciples throughout the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 23, beginning in verse 23, and when it says he here at the beginning, it's referring to the Roman tribune, the person in charge of the military there in Jerusalem who was holding on to Paul, okay? Verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, 
I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. You can be seated. All right, so once again, as usual, inside uh, your bulletin sermon notes page, if it's helpful for you to take notes, uh, that's there, the life group guide for those of you that meet with a life group. If you're interested in joining one, please let us know. Three quick points. Really, the passage, not all that hard to understand, but I think the application for us is rich. What I want you to note as we look through this is that God often does His guarding work through human means. We see that right away in verses 23 and 24, where Paul, his life is going to be guarded by the Roman military. It's likely that stationed in Jerusalem was a cohort or about 1,000 soldiers there in Jerusalem Uh, the Roman Empire had taken over areas like Jerusalem, and so Rome would have their military stationed in key places throughout the empire, and a cohort or 1,000 soldiers would have been stationed there in Jerusalem. They have taken prisoner, Paul, because he has been stirring up the crowds and there's plots against his life, and so Paul is their prisoner. And did you notice the plan Once they hear that that there's a Jewish ambush, a plot against Paul's life, an ambush in which they seek to kill Paul, do you notice what the Romans are going to do in order to protect Paul? Did, Did you read? Did you hear as I read that? You talk about protection, right? The President of the United States does not even get protection like this. They're going to assign so that Paul can safely be militarily evacuated from Jerusalem to go up to Caesarea, which is about 60 miles to the northwest. Okay? That's where they're going to send Paul because that's where the, like, the, the headquarters for that region are for the Roman government, and the governor named Felix is up there. They want to send Paul up there, but in order to get him safely there, he is being assigned 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, and 70 How do they say it? I'm in the wrong page. There we go. 70 horsemen. Okay? So if there's a thousand people stationed, a thousand soldiers stationed there in Jerusalem, almost half of them are being sent with Paul in order that he might be safely evacuated from Jerusalem and brought up to Caesarea. God, remember, had promised Paul that he would testify about the facts of Jesus in Rome. And God here is using the Roman military to guard Paul until his appointed day of death, even though 
the Jewish accusers would like to see him dead that day. So they make a plan. And now as Paul is sent, Paul is sent also with a letter. He's headed up to Caesarea. And when he gets there, the governor needs to know why he's being sent there. Right? And I don't know, like maybe internet servers were down or something. He couldn't send an email ahead, right? So he sends with them a, a letter from the, the authority, the Roman tribune there in Jerusalem. His name is Claudius Lysias. And they sign their letters different. They put their name at the beginning of the letter if they're writing it. And then they kind of so like it's from and then to and then the body of the letter. So let's look at that letter. Acts chapter 23, we see the letter beginning in verse 26 where it says, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greeting. So Claudius Lysias has quite a bit of authority, but the governor Felix has more authority. Okay, so he's sending Paul to a greater Roman authority. Now, one thing you'll notice as I read these two verses, if you remember what we've read the last couple of weeks, that the summary that Claudius gives of what he's done with Paul is, he's, how should I say it, he's kind to himself, Right? Uh, he leaves out uh, some of the, the things that he didn't do very well, and he just kind of makes himself sound like a hero as he writes a letter to his superior. Okay? So let's look at what he wrote. He, he writes this in verse 27. This man, referring to Paul, was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Well, if you remember what actually happened... I mean, that's sort of true, but like what actually happened is, is he arrested Paul and was about to torture him, had him stretched out for the whips when he learned that Paul was a Roman citizen and therefore didn't whip him and torture him in that moment, right? So the fact that he kind of just leaves that part out conveniently and says like, oh, they were about to do something, but I came in and rescued him. Okay, it's interesting. Verse 28 and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their counsel. This is a, kind of some logical legal steps. Well, he's being accused by these people, and these people kind of have their own way of doing their governing. They have their own law. And so I'm going to, if they're the ones accusing him, let's go down and see what their counsel has to say. Is this man guilty or not? Verse 29, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. So that's Claudius's interpretation of things. The Jewish people want to see Paul put to death. Well, he's like, I don't even think he needs to be imprisoned. I don't think he's really done anything wrong, right? And so he includes that in his letter, verse 30. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Okay, So he's saying, all right, so in their counsel, they had this little sort of trial kind of thing. Now I'm going to send Paul that he can stand before you, governor. And I'm also going to send his accusers to come and stand before you so that they will be like the prosecution and that Paul is the defendant. All right? So there's about to be a trial. And so, once again, God is guarding Paul. 
not only through a military evacuation, but also through a letter written by Claudius, who is allowing himself to, to or who is telling the governor, I don't think he's done anything to deserve death or imprisonment. Okay? So Paul's life being guarded by the Roman military and by an official letter. And then we get to verse 20 or 31 and we see what is actually going to take place. So the stage is set. And now here's how Paul gets to Caesarea. Verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Remember it said the third hour. So 9 o'clock p.m., is when they're leaving. They're trying to go under the cover of night, and they're, they're going to make this trip in, in a pretty fast clip. Okay, They're moving along quickly because Antipatris is about halfway of that 60-mile distance between Jerusalem and Caesarea, and it's not easy roads to travel, but they're going to go by night with this huge group of soldiers as Paul is evacuated from there. And verse 32 says, on the next day, they returned to the barracks. So that's the 400 of them returned to the barracks back in Jerusalem. But they let the horsemen, there was 70 of them, remember, go on with Paul. So he was ushered out of town by 470 of them, gets halfway, uh, and 400 of them drop back. And 70 of them still accompany him the rest of the trip to Caesarea. Verse 33, when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. Now, why would the governor ask that? Well, the governor would ask that because, like, I don't want to waste my time with some hearing from some guy who I'm not even supposed to oversee. But he finds out that Paul's from Cilicia, that's Tarsus is in Cilicia. And so, like, okay, that's my territory. That's part of his jurisdiction, and so he says, I'll, I'll hear the case. I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. Okay? So the official accusers are going to be sent from Jerusalem. They're going to be probably disappointed when they hear from Claudius, hey, Paul is already gone, because remember, they wanted to ambush him along the way and kill him, but he's been militarily evacuated in the middle of the night and made really quick a really quick trip, two days, covered 60 miles to get up to Caesarea. It's going to take a little while for the accusers to travel from Jerusalem up to Caesarea. But when they get there, the governor says, I will give you a hearing. Okay? And in the meantime, so, so Paul has not only been guarded along the journey by the military, while he's there in Caesarea, he's going to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium, kind of the governor headquarters there in Caesarea. So Paul is being well protected this entire time, even though he's a prisoner. So you got, got kind of the idea of what's happening? Summary is, Lord made a really clear promise to Paul, you will testify about the facts of Jesus in Rome. But the challenge is, there's also a plot against Paul's life. So if Paul is going to get from Jerusalem to Rome... God's going to have to protect him because everybody, a lot of people want to see him dead. And God provides protection. God guards Paul's life through the human means of the Roman military and an official letter. So the military takes him on the journey and now he's being guarded in Herod's praetorium. So, I think there's, a, there, there's some uh, sharp application for us in this. Some needed application for us in this. But before I jump to 
what does this have for us? I wouldn't be a very good pastor if I didn't show you how this points to Jesus, right? And so as I looked at this, I was reminded once again of how many parallels we see between Paul's life and the life of Jesus. So first, some gospel application. God appointed Jesus to die for us. Think about the parallels. If we look at Acts chapters 21 through 23, now we've gotten through that section, here's what we've seen. Just listen to this and see, see if, there's like, if this sounds familiar. In Acts 21 to 23, Paul has been arrested. Paul has been accused by the Jews and brought before the council. Paul has been found not guilty by the Roman tribune, Claudius, and Paul is now being sent to a higher Roman authority, the governor, Felix. Now, remember that the writer of the book of Acts is Luke, and Luke is also the author of the Gospel of Luke. So you could go back to the Gospel of Luke and look at chapters 22 to 23, and here's what you would find is true about Jesus in Luke. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is accused by Jews. Jesus is brought before the council. Jesus is found not guilty by the Roman official, Pilate. Jesus is then sent to a higher-ranking Roman ruler named Herod. Right? So you see the parallels pretty clearly between Paul and Jesus in Jerusalem. And if you recall, if, you, if you're familiar with the Gospels enough, you might recall, as I did, as I, and I don't have time, like as a Bible study, you know, we're not, we're not going to go back and look at all of these passages, but you might recall times in the Gospels where more than once Jesus' life is being threatened, and He is guarded by God the Father, and Jesus often makes a comment something like, my time has not yet come. Remember that in, in the Gospel? We see it especially in the Gospel of John. That there were many times where Jesus' life was threatened, and God the Father had certainly appointed a day for Jesus to die, but until that day came, God was going to make sure that Jesus' life was guarded. And a day was appointed for Jesus to die. God the Father had appointed a day for Jesus to die. Now, the day of Jesus' death, this is hard to grasp, isn't it? The day of Jesus' death, the events of that day were an evil act carried out by Romans in response to the accusation of some Jewish people, but in the end, Jesus' death happened according to the precise plan of the Father. Because it was the Father's plan that only through the life of our perfect representative Jesus, and only through the death of Jesus as our substitute could we be reconciled to God. Because we know all the way from early in Scripture that sin and death entered the world through Adam and Eve. And since Adam and Eve, all sin and all die. And we know this too from Scripture, that all who sin are deserving of the wrath of God because God is a just and a holy God. 
Yet we also know from Scripture that God is a merciful God. So God provided a way for Him to remain perfectly just, yet also to show His mercy to some. So the question for us is maybe not so much when will we die, but maybe what will happen when we die. And really, you know, a lot of different ideas and understandings out there. I mean, there's some wacky things that people think of, of what happens when you die, right? Like you get wings and you're an angel and you, like, all, all sorts of stuff, like, like right? Or, or you're reincarnated into something else. Or others believe, well, when you die, your body's put in the ground and that's it. What the Bible teaches what happens when you die is one of two things. You will experience eternal life or eternal punishment. You will experience salvation or wrath. And so our memory verse for this week comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, where it says this. Paul, remember, there is writing to a group of believers. These are people who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And he writes this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That's the two options. Either you're going to obtain wrath or you're going to obtain salvation. And Paul's writing to believers and saying, God's not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. And when he's saying awake or asleep, those are euphemisms for being alive or being dead. Right? So whether we're alive or dead, those who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus will not experience God's wrath, but will instead experience life with Him forever. So, when will you die? I don't know. How will you die? I don't know. Will you die? Yeah. Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that, judgment. I do know, though I don't know when or how, what I do know is that when, when you die, when I die, we will either experience God's wrath, His just eternal punishment for our sins, or we will experience God's salvation and eternal life with Him. The only way to be saved is to trust in Jesus who died for us. It's the good news. God has made a way for sinners to be saved for, for those who were dead to be made alive. For those who deserve His wrath to instead enjoy eternal life with Him. And it's through what Christ has done. And it is applied to us by God's grace through faith in Jesus. When we say, this is me, sinner before God. And now God has given me a new heart so that I don't desire sin as much as I desire Jesus. So I desire to turn away from sin and turn toward Jesus turning to Him in faith. I hope you've heard that good news and responded to it in that way by trusting in Jesus. And if not, we'd love to talk to you more about that today or Ron and Linda will be up here after the worship service and they'd love to talk to you as well. But one more point of application for us from this passage where we see God guarding Paul until his appointed day of death. A reminder for us, 
First of all, this, God has numbered our days. God has numbered our days. Can you believe that? Psalm 139, verse 16 says this. It says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So, like, the number of our days is not ultimately determined by what we choose to eat, how much we sleep, our family health history, how we're feeling today, what the doctor's diagnosis is. All those things matter, but ultimately the number of our days is determined by our sovereign God. God has numbered our days. And I think we can also be confident of this. And God will, because He has numbered our days, God will guard us until our appointed day of death. God has numbered our days and God will guard us until our appointed day of death. You may remember the biblical story of Job. After Job had lost all of his children, not like just suffered the loss of a child, all of his children, sons and daughters, Job lost them. I love the conclusion of Job, but before we even get to the conclusion of Job, Job says this in Job chapter 12, verse 9. He says, who among all these does not know? Just imagine a man humbled as he's lost almost everything. His own health gone down the tubes. And this is what he says. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Job is absolutely convinced of God's sovereignty over all of life. In His hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Listen, if you and I are still living and breathing at lunchtime tomorrow, it is because the Lord is guarding us until our appointed day of death. If you and I are still living and breathing at lunchtime tomorrow, It is because our life and our breath are held in the very hand of God and He will guard us until our appointed day of death. I read a little bit this week about a missionary. He was a missionary in the 1800s to India and Persia. His name, Henry Martin. And in January of 1812, he wrote this in his journal. To all appearance... The present year will be more perilous than any I have seen. So he's not writing like New Year's resolutions. I'm going to lose five pounds this year. He's just looking at the year ahead, and he's saying it's going to be worse than any year I've seen. He's 31 years old. But if I live to complete the Persian New Testament, that's the mission he had, getting the New Testament into the language of the people in that part of the world, my life after that will be of less importance. But whether life or death be mine... May Christ be magnified in me. If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. He had that kind of confidence. God was going to guard him until his appointed day of death. Until the work that God has for me to do is done, I will not die. Right? That's great confidence that he could have. By the way, ten months later he died. In October of 1812 at the age of 31 on the day that God had appointed for him to die. Since then, others have paraphrased that to say, I am immortal till Christ's work for me to do is done. 
I am immortal till Christ's work for me to do is done. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God has numbered our days and that he will guard you until his work for you to do is done? I think that's what we see in Paul's life. All sorts of threats against Paul's life, yet God guarded Paul until the day that he could make it to Rome and eventually face death. Even when everything was stacked against him. We're going to see that in the rest of the book. Somebody just asked me when I was talking to them in their home a week or two ago, whatever happened to Paul? You get to the end of Acts and he's still alive, right? Well, he's still alive because God has guarded him till that day. He, he did, of course, die, but we don't have record of that in the book of Acts. God intended for Paul to go to Rome, and even when everything was stacked against Paul, God would guard Paul until his work through Paul was done. And the same was true of the missionary Henry Martin at the age of 31 in 1812, and the same is true for you and for me, that God will guard us until our appointed day of death. What difference does that make for us? Well, probably a lot of different things, but I thought of two. I'll close with this. One, this should chip away at our anxiety a little bit. If we, if we believe that God is sovereign in such a way that he will guard us until our appointed day of death, that God has numbered our days, this should chip away at our anxiety. We're anxious because we don't know when we might die. We're anxious because we don't know what might cause death. Maybe we're not so anxious about ourselves, but we're anxious about the people that we love. Anxious about our parents, anxious about our spouse, anxious about our kids. Right? We don't know. We're worried. We're prone to worry about all sorts of health issues, other dangers, but when we remind ourselves and one another often of the truth that every one of our days are numbered and we are guarded by God until that appointed day, we chip away at anxiety and grow in peace as we trust in Him. And then secondly, this should give us a sense of purpose and urgency to be about God's work. Knowing that God has numbered our days and he will guard us until our appointed day of death should give us a sense of purpose and urgency to be about God's work. I mean, if we really are immortal until Christ's work for us to do is done, then the fact that we're still alive means he has work for us still to do, right? You might feel like, well, I can't do everything like this person can, or I can't do everything like I used to be able to. The fact that we're still alive means God has work for us yet to do. So whatever our age, however long we've been believers, whatever our degree of health or not health is, we resolve to spend whatever remains of our lives doing the work that God has called us to do, knowing that God will guard us until the day of our appointed death. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would give us that kind of resolve. God, I pray that you would chip away at our anxiety. 
pray that you would cause our, our faith and trust in you to grow, that fear and anxiety would shrink. Pray that those who are separated from you by sin would be born again through faith in Jesus. Pray that you would give us confidence, not in ourselves, but in the delightful truth that Christ Jesus has lived for us according to your plan, that he died for us according to your plan, that he rose for us, that he is right now even, Scripture says, interceding for us, and that he will come again to take us to be with him on the day that you have appointed. I thank you that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. I thank you that it's true that if God is for us, then who can be against us? And so strengthen us as we sing this together now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are.